The Athletic. Totally Football Show today. Champions League quarterfinals. Atleti parked the bus in Manchester while rail driver bends through Chelsea. And we ask, which sub did it better, Phil Foden or Villarreal against Bayern? Plus, Premier League, Man City, Liverpool and Everton relegation. Once so far-fetched, even Matt Latiss wouldn't believe it. But now, more real than ever, it's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Yes, indeed, it is the Totally Football Show on this Thursday, the 7th of April, with Tom Williams. Hi, Tom. Hello, James. Hello to you. Also, Natalie Jedra of ESPN Brazil. Bom dia. Bom dia to you. And Colin Miller joining us as well. Hello, Colin. Hello, James. Good to have you with us, Colin, especially on this big week for La Liga, Wednesday especially. Yeah, it, it was it was another big week for La Liga. I think I think it's another season whereby we've maybe written off uh, the top teams in Spain a little too prematurely, and mm. they've maybe roared back somewhat this week. Um, so some good results so far. Let's let's see how the Europa League teams get on later on. Absolutely, Thursday night, a big week for bald men with a bit of a beard. Tom Williams. Well, Den when hard. is it not, James? When <laughs> is it not? You, I'm th- no, every time I see a picture of Ten Hag, I do think Tom Williams a little bit. He's got a. I mean, he's, he's like. I can see that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. I mean, there are a lot of bald men with a bit of facial hair around, yeah. as as you know yourself, Joe. Yeah. I don't need to tell you that. Um, yeah. But yeah, he's he's probably he's probably on the Venn diagram somewhere. I would have thought. Oh yeah. I might my football uh, football look like Venn diagram. Right. I do find people are a bit baldest. That anybody who's bald with a beard, you will get things in your timeline going oh look Jimbo there you were wherever it was you know around mm. the turf moor probably people anyway. people still think that that telling bald people they're bald is going to hurt them in a way right. that you wouldn't if you were just sort of telling a person with brown hair they had brown hair mm. um fact just, is they just, can't just hurt in case any well, well, <laughs> any more than Mother Nature already has. Yeah, already you know, has. Just, Damage just in has been done, any, people. Move just on. Just in case any of any of my Twitter trolls are listening, it, it you know it, it really it really doesn't bother me at all. But you know right. you, you you crack on, lads. All right then. The scores in the Champions League Tuesday: Man City struggled to break down a gritty Atletico defence before exploding Phil Foden set up Kevin De Bruyne with his first touch and a one-nil win. A Liverpool, meanwhile, three-one winners away at Benfica on Wednesday. Benzema with back-to-back Champions League hat-tricks as Real Madrid beat holders Chelsea at Stamford Bridge 3-1, which is good, but one less than Brentford managed at the weekend. And Villarreal beat Bayern 1-0. Extraordinary. Meanwhile, that Burnley-Everton relegation six-pointer. Everton going behind at Turf Moor, then coming back to take the lead, then going behind again for a 3-2 defeat that leaves them just one point from the drop. A lot for us to talk about today. We're going to begin at the bridge. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Wow, it's very happy uh, Madrileños there. A lot to unpack from that clip. Not least them calling Benzema El Gato, 
reference to a certain Jose Mourinho's derisory comments, of course. But big story here, Real Madrid and that 3-1 win at Stamford Bridge. Natalie, you were there. How did it happen? Oh, God. Benzema happened. Uh, we we all know about his stats, the goals, everything. But watching him there at Stamford Bridge, the, the, the way that... That he moves, it really impressed me, especially when he's not with the ball, because he arrives in the box with so much power and at the same time with a lot of class. Uh, after the match, I spoke to Jorginho and I, I said, okay, we all know about uh, Benzema's qualities, but what is it that makes it so hard to, to stop him three times? He scored a hat-trick inside Stamford Bridge and he said the way he moves is very hard to stop. It's not impossible, but the way he moves and, and at his age... Uh, he he has the power, he has the strength, and he has the vision to attack the right spaces and to to make a living hell out of the defenders. He he did it brilliantly, and of course we can go on and on about uh, Benzema and how well he played and the other players. Uh, Vinicius Junior with mm. Christensen, it was difficult for Christensen to say the least uh Thomas Tuchel tried uh, a change uh during halftime and I thought it was a good idea actually but then they scored the third on the first minute and it, it it all went south for for Chelsea for many different reasons but but the defensive uh side the, the way they defended against a team as Real Madrid they have so much authority even when Chelsea was attacking you you never felt that uh that Chelsea was so much of a threat to the result as Real Madrid because they are they were so composed all the time all the players and you see that midfield uh, with Kroos with uh, Modric and all oh, they're old Real Madrid need to to renew their midfield but they they know exactly what to do in this type of matches so you have mm-hmm. midfielders like this and you have Benzema and you have the youngsters and you have Real Madrid uh Winning by 3-1 at Stamford Bridge, it was it was incredible. Mm, Modric, who's a month older than Wayne Rooney, serving up a delicious assist for the, the second, the, the more remarkable of, of Benzema's two headers. Benzema, Tom, you were pointing out, given the way his career has gone, it's extraordinary, quoting from you here, he spent nine seasons doing Cristiano Ronaldo's legwork. He went five and a half years without playing a single game for France, still comes out as one of Real Madrid's greatest ever players and the most prolific French footballer in history. Yeah, it's remarkable, really. If you look back to where Karim Benzema was in, say, 2018, which was when Ronaldo left Madrid, he'd obviously had a you know phenomenally successful time at Madrid in, in terms of trophy wins, but he was very much playing second fiddle to Cristiano Ronaldo throughout that time. I mean, still scoring plenty of goals, but nothing like the rate he was scoring them at today. At that time, he was still being frozen out by France over the, the Matteo Valbuena uh, sex tape blackmail case. Um, and, you know, was a, as a frustrated spectator as, as, as France won the World Cup. And, and you kind of felt that that was going to be, you know, that was going to be his lot, that he would, you know, he would be a, an important member of this, uh, this very successful Real Madrid team uh, and a guy whose international career, you know, would, would just never uh, get back on track. And yet now here we are four years on in 2022, uh, you know he's 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 already recorded his best ever season uh, in terms of in terms of goals 
and we're still a month out from the end of the season. He's going to win La Liga with Madrid. He looks like he's about to find Madrid into the semi-finals in the Champions League and possibly beyond. He's back in the France team uh, and has this really exciting partnership with Kylian Mbappe, which could yet be reproduced next season uh, at Madrid as well. Uh, and in France, there's this kind of belated loving around Benzema at the moment. There was an interview with him in L'Equipe uh, a couple of days ago and, and you just get this sense of a guy who's completely at the top of his game, um, who, who knows exactly what he's doing, uh, both for club and, and for country. Um, and yeah, pretty incredible that at the age of 34 uh, and having, having been playing Champions League football now for 17 seasons, uh, he made his debut back in 2005 in a game against Rosenborg when he was still, you know, the sort of... Uh, the boy wonder who'd just come out of, of the Lyon Academy. Um, and so to not only still be playing in the Champions League, but to actually be playing the best football of his career after mm. that that very long stretch where it looked like he was just kind of drifting, you know, drifting through his career, picking up trophies, but 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 nothing beyond that is is absolutely extraordinary. One of the uh, one of the things in the Spanish media that they that they keep repeating about Benzema is how he, how he's like a fine wine, getting better with the age and I uh, I did an interview last month with Aitor Carranca, who was Jose Mourinho's assistant at Madrid when, when Benzema obviously was there in the sort of early days. And he said that even at that point that you could see that he was he was sort of ready to take that sort of leadership role in the team, even though at the time he was almost playing a secondary role to Ronaldo. He was sort of ready to, to step up and, and take on that mantle whenever, whenever it came round. And if you look at his goal scoring stats, Certainly, since Ronaldo left in 2018, they they are remarkable. He's averaging over 30 goals per season. But I think if you look at, especially his game last night, it's his positional awareness, it's his movement, as Natalie alluded to there. It's just his ability to find space in the box, and and that's where those two headers came from. Really, just just his ability to find that extra yard and, and to make that room for himself. But I think actually the third goal was almost was almost as revealing as the first two, in the sense that everyone's like, oh, that was a sort of uncharacteristic mistake by Edward Mendy and Antonio Rudiger, but. That all came from Benzema's pressing, um, and he really pressed right up on Demandi. And if we remember back to the round of 16 game, it was a similar issue with Donnarumma when Benzema had closed him mm. down and forced him into a mistake for the first goal. And even back all the way to the 2018 Champions League final against Liverpool, and of course the Loris Karius um, error was forced by Benzema pressing that high up. And it's that it's almost that side of the game that nobody really seems to talk about because we all know about his wonderful technique and everything else, but. The fact that at, that at that age that he is showing such energy in attack, and he's been playing pretty much every week for Real Madrid this season, and and those, those sort of energy levels and that sort of commitment that he's obviously shown in training, it, it really has set him apart, and I and I think he is probably the the very best player in the world at this moment in time. Crikey, the energy level is remarkable as well, given that he'd been doing his Ramadan fast until thirteen minutes before kickoff. Hmm, Tom. Yeah, just briefly on on those two headed goals, he was actually asked about the amount of goals he's scoring with his head in that keep interview because it was something that he wasn't particularly good at early in his career. He was kind of renowned for not being particularly good in the air and now he's he's absolutely exceptional. And he said that a lot of it comes down to the work that he's done to sort of strengthen his core. He was like, oh, it's, it's, it's all the sit-ups that I'm doing. It's given me a sort of strength and it's given me a greater ability to, to leap and, and hang in the air. And he said that when... He scored his hat-trick against uh, PSG in the previous round, albeit none of those goals were headers. He noticed that he was able to out-jump and out-compete a seasoned header of the ball as Marquinhos. Um, And I think that, again, is something that perhaps doesn't get talked about all that much is the amount of hard work Benzema puts in off the pitch. You know, he's got this kind of bad boy reputation and, and that is not... 
wholly undeserved. But in terms of his professionalism, the amount of work he does in the gym, uh, you know, the sort of sacrifices he makes in his personal life, he does an awful lot of work uh, just on the athletic side of the game. And I think particularly this newfound or relatively newfound prowess in the air it is one of the most obvious manifestations of that. Mm. Big Ben, marker, dubbed him on their front page. Thursday morning. Mm. Well, Thomas Tuchel afterwards, looking very frustrated and declaring the tie already over. Colin, what do you think? Because Real Madrid have been not always playing at this level this year. Got absolutely done by Barcelona, although admittedly that was without Benzema. They also lost at home to, to Sheriff Tiraspol earlier on in the season. So what, what do you think? Uh, Real Madrid are, are a really curious team, and and they're a team that I've I've always been a bit reluctant to kind of say, oh, they, they, these are these are real sort of European contenders, or this is a team who are in a bit of disarray because they've often been both within the same game. They they obviously have obviously the, the, a huge, vast amount of experience within that team, uh, you know, a huge amount of quality, but there's always been that question that it's an aging team. You know, we talk about Benzema being 34, Modric, um, Tony Cruz even in the middle of midfield. These are players who have been around the block for for a decade or more, and and they they have unconvinced at times, but have kept winning in the league, and and they're going to win the league of this season. There's no doubt about it. And they're in such a position now in the Champions League, whereby they can focus solely on these games. They can reserve uh, energy a little bit more in a way that they weren't able to last season. And I think that that could be crucial because when we look at Carlo Ancelotti, he's on the verge of being the first ever manager to win a title in Spain, England, Germany, Italy, and France. And he has obviously won three Champions League titles before. So this is a guy who who we probably don't really see as being an elite coach at the minute, but has managed to forge this kind of winning mentality in this team who just who just seem to work even when it doesn't appear to be doing so within the game. And we saw that especially against PSG in the round of 16, whereby for about 75% of that tie, they were poorly average. They weren't really in it. They were clearly second best. They were able to turn it around. And I think... I think it's that that self belief that they have, and the the sort of dynamic within that team allows them to win games and to not just to win games whenever they're not performing well, but to dig out the big performances for the matches that really matter, such as such as Wednesday night. Yeah, Madrid's maturity and the way they they deal with circumstances is 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 quite something because there were a lot of question marks after the the four 0 to Barcelona. And after that, there was international break, and they played really poorly against Celta de Vigo. They needed uh, two two goals from penalties from the penalty spots to to win them to 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 beat them. And then they come to to this big Champions League uh, fixture, and they show this maturity. And you see the gap between both teams in in this sense, because Chelsea seemed anxious at the final ball. They they weren't getting that, and the finishing was. Good at times, but too rushed at others. So mentally, Real Madrid was there all the time and, and Chelsea wasn't. So it, it, it was a huge gap uh, during the match. Mm. All right, so Chelsea with a big task ahead of them next week after they played Southampton at the weekend. Uh, now, also Wednesday night, Colin, Villarreal beating Bayern 1-0. Bayern beaten by a side, managed by an Arsenal cast-off, a side that had just lost to two bottom four sides in La Liga. Explain. Yeah, I just said Real Madrid were a curious team. Uh, I don't know where that fits Villarreal because they are 
a totally different beast in European football than they are in La Liga. They're seventh in La Liga and their two last results were defeats against Cardiff and Levante, who are both uh, fighting relegation. Um, yet they managed to win 3-0 away to Juventus. They managed to beat Bayern Munich 1-0. And it's Unai Emery, isn't it? I mean, this is a guy who who won three Europa League titles with Sevilla, but in his final season at Sevilla, he finished seventh, who reached the Europa League final at Arsenal, yet had a really underwhelming sort of time of it in the league. And then he finished seventh in the Liga last season with Villarreal, wins the Europa League, and Villarreal are seventh again this season, and, and they're in the Champions League. So it, it's it's almost like this this pattern just keeps repeating, whereby his his real strength in coaching is, is quite obviously in these European matches. And I was watching this match last night whenever and whenever I kept looking at the screen it, it was Villarreal breaking forward breaking through the lines of Bayern's defence and Bayern probably had a quite a bit of the ball but Villarreal was a team who created the big chances and they could easily have won this by more than just 1-0 obviously they had the the bizarre Francis Coquelin sort of mishit cross <laughs> lipping in for 2-0 that was marginally offside and then in the dying minutes uh, the fullback Pedraza missed, missed, a, missed a glorious chance after being played through so they they really manage this this leg very very well and listen you have to go to Munich and Bayern are, are different than any other team mm. in the world and being able to click and attack I don't know if they can sustain that over ninety minutes and I know that on uh, Tuesday's pod Alvaro Romeo had said Villarreal they're they're great in Europe but their physicality might get found out a little bit against Bayern but that that didn't really seem to happen they they seem to they seem to match them and they seem to just have that sort of tactical awareness to, to exploit the spaces the Bayern sort of created with their with their sort of high pressing and high attacking system. So uh, the second leg's in the balance for this one, but but it was an excellent performance by Villarreal and Emery's record in Europe is is just sensational. Well, indeed, Bayern, who hadn't lost an away game in Europe for five years, it was Emery who'd beaten them back then three 0 with when he was in charge of Paris Saint Germain. I think the one note of caution for Villarreal would be, well, probably not the only note of caution, but one significant note of caution was that in the previous round, Bayern were held to a 1-1 draw by Red Bull Salzburg in the first leg and then took them back to Munich and beat them 7-1. So it is entirely conceivable uh, that that Bayern could end up still running out comfortable victors in the second leg because, as as Colin said, you know, that they they are absolute uh, goal machines, particularly at home. But yeah, I you know sort of watched the highlights and, and, and read a couple of reports on the game, and I thought you know Villarreal looked absolutely fantastic. And I think if anything, their regret will be that, given the other chances they managed to procure, they weren't able to close the, the game out a bit more convincingly uh, and just give themselves a little bit of uh, a little bit more wiggle room uh, ahead of what is likely to be a very challenging second leg. Mm. Uh, we should talk about Anna Danjuma, and in fact, a Villarreal starting eleven which featured. Uh, a Spurs loanee, players formerly at Watford, QPR, Charlton and Danjuma, uh, who a year ago was scoring against Blackburn in the Championship. Now, this season, he had the assist at Old Trafford against Man United, scored twice against Atalanta to get them into the knockout, scored against Juventus and he scores the winner against Bayern in the quarterfinals. Remarkable. I mean, he did look really good at Bournemouth and I think particularly with attacking players... I think it's much easier to just plonk an attacking player from a team like Bournemouth into a team like Villarreal playing in the Champions League if you've got a kind of solid basis behind you. But yeah, pretty remarkable when you you think at at how I mean, not that they were sort of unglamorous players um, that you know that the former Premier League players were in that Villarreal team, but but certainly players who who played for for pretty unglamorous clubs. And yeah, I think yeah, I think it's it's you know testament to, to as Colin says, Unai Emery's ability to to craft really specific, really effective tactical strategies for for big European games like this. Mm. 
Colin, can you give us a stat about Unai Emery to underline his prowess in the Cups? Yes, yeah, so obviously Emery, um, excluding his time at, uh, at PSG, who we who we all know were sort of eternally cursed in Europe at the moment, they uh, Emery has won 21 consecutive two-legged knockout ties in Europe um, across uh, Sevilla, across Arsenal, and obviously Real as well. So that stretches back to 2013-14 season. So let's see if he can make it uh, 22 uh, consecutive two-legged victories over those clubs against Bayern. Wow. Bayern, as Tom was mentioning, an absolute machine at home. 20 goals they've scored in their four home matches in the Champions League this season. That looks like quite a return leg next week. Uh, meanwhile, Tuesday, uh, Man City and Liverpool's victories will get on to next. Hello, listeners. It's Carl Mullen from Paddy Power, and I trust we are all looking forward to the top of the table clash this Sunday at the Etihad. This could well be a winner-takes-all contest and already has neutrals foaming at the mouth. Such is the anticipation. City are the favourites to lift the Premier League title, no surprise, at 4-9, whilst Liverpool are priced at 17-10 to win the league. Why are City so short, though? Well, allow me to project. They're the defending champions. They lie a point clear of Klopp's men, having played the same amount of games. They're in their own backyard this Sunday, have the easier of the two run-ins. And there's also the fact... Liverpool have not won at Eastlands since 2015. If Pep Guardiola's Chargers win the game, they'll go four points clear of the Merseysiders with seven games to play. If the Reds win, the title race will be right back in their hands. Ooh, very exciting. But a trip to Old Trafford and a home match against Spurs make the Pools run in definitely a bit more treacherous. In terms of the match betting this Sunday, though, Man City are 19 to 20, the draw is 27 to 10, and Liverpool are an attractive 5 to 2. Luis Diaz has joined from Porto, has looked very much at home and was a match winner in midweek in Lisbon. If the unthinkable were to happen and Mo was to go and take the big paycheck elsewhere, at least with Diaz, Liverpool fans can rest assured that they have super talented replacements ready to step in at any moment. But surely Salah's not going to leave, is he? He wouldn't do that to Liverpool fans, would he? You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or indeed the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s. T's and C's apply. BeGambleAware.org. And remember, take time to think. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Tuesday, Liverpool and Man City both winning in the Champions League ahead of their clash in the Premier League this Sunday. Liverpool 3-1 at Benfica. The Man City-Atleti game, Natalie, once more, you were at this match to witness the first time that Atletico had ever failed to have a single shot on or off target in a match under Diego Simeone. They weren't even trying to counterattack. We were we were waiting for the counterattacks, and the counterattacks weren't happening. It it wasn't the most exciting first half, especially second half was a bit better. But again, Atletico they seemed to stop City not from finishing, but from finishing the way they wanted with the quality they usually have. And I, I was surprised at first that that folding didn't start. It was a big talking point after the match because uh, I thought that maybe a, a good game for a more direct player like him. But at the same time, I don't know if he would find the spaces to make those runs, the way Atletico played. So Bernardo as a false nine would have like a different approach the way uh, City was attacking. When they had Foden, he was definitely brilliant. 
But another element uh, on this match is the, the emotional side. Always with Atletico and with Simeone and City, they need to keep their calm for the second leg. Because Atletico's mm. players targeted Jack Grealish and he lost his temper to the point that the match was over and Fernandinho had to pull him off the pitch because he was still arguing with one of them. And, and in Wanda, it's going to be much worse because the atmosphere before and during the match is going to be amazing. And Simeone, he calls on the fans to do that. During the match, he makes gestures to the fans, uh, trying to bring them on inside the match. And, and it's a big factor for Atletico de Madrid. It's, it's the closest thing of, a, of Libertadores that you're going to get in Europe. <laughs> and I, I really like that because they, they know how to use all the elements of the game. It's uh, the way they defend, the way they put pressure on the ref, the way they build up the atmosphere before and during the game. The players can be a bit provoking at the, ma at the pitch. So it's much more than just a way to play. We're talking so much about philosophies. It's the way you approach the whole experience of a football match with Atletico de Madrid. Mm, talking about philosophies, let's talk about Phil Foden. I, I did think today's show was going to be all about Phil Foden and then Benzema and Villarreal happened, but he doesn't need space. I mean, he comes on, he's got four Atletico defenders within a couple of metres of him and he just slips the ball between, uh, who was it, Reynaldo's legs to Kevin De Bruyne with his first touch and it doesn't seem to worry him in any his extraordinary performance. Yeah, well, he's so cool-headed, Phil Foden, as well. Um, and has that capacity that the very great players have to make it seem like he has much more time and space than anybody else. Um, and all of the City players had been uh, rapping on the Atletico Madrid door with increasing levels of force for the entirety of the game until he came on. And then, as you say, with his first touch of the ball, he manages to, you know, to, to, to find the gap that makes the difference. And then a, a few moments later, that was that absolutely scintillating dribble down the right-hand side where he kind of wriggles along the byline and, and cuts it back in. Yeah, I mean, pretty surprising that he wasn't in uh, the starting eleven when you know how effective uh, he tends to be for City in the Champions League, when you know how effective he tends to be in, in all the big games that, that City play. But I suppose the fact that, that Guardiola did end up bringing him on uh, meant that he, he was able to influence the game. And I suspect we'll probably see him in the starting eleven against Liverpool at the weekend and then probably uh, in the return leg as well. Mm. Alvaro on Tuesday was talking about the, the levitating Pedri as being the best Spanish talent he's seen for a long time. How would you, how would you rate Phil Foden along, alongside him? In terms of English talents, BT Sport, Jolien Lescott was saying could be the greatest English player ever. I think he was talking about in terms of the number of trophies that he'll win. But is there a better young talent in the world than Phil Foden when you look at what he can do and how easily it seems to be for him to do it? might depend on how you define young because if you're mm -hmm. putting Mbappe in there and Haaland in there there is there but is he's in that conversation oh absolutely and in term in terms of purely in terms of players who are enjoyable to watch I think probably alongside Pedri um, I don't think there's a footballer who who makes me kind of involuntarily smile uh, watching the TV as, as much as Foden does it's just there's something very pure about the kind of football that he plays and uh, he, he's probably got a, a pretty incredible career in front of him. But I think there's a difference when we talk about this and we compare to Haaland and to Mbappé, because I think they have more international recognition than Foden. So I think Foden is still not at the same table as these ones, these two especially, uh, when, when we talk about European recognition and European level. Does Jack Grealish get kept on the bench, do you think, for the, the second leg of the, the Wanda? 
Or does Pep put him on just I, to I really would. wind the Atleti players up? But he, he can end up he, with he 10 winds players. Him up so much. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd play him. You'd, play, you'd have to wrap him in about sort of multiple bandages and he'll have to wear about <laughs> six shin pads on, on, on each leg. <laughs> but I, I can't, like, the extent to which Atletico went after him when he came on. Mm. You find yourself thinking, is there, is there more to this? Like, is it the Gucci thing? Are they all big, like, Christian Dior fans in the Atletico Madrid changing room? Is there something else that is sparking this? Or whether they just thought that he was the most likely player to blow a fuse by being repeatedly targeted. But, yeah, if, yes. if purely for the spectacle, I'm hoping that he does, he does start the second leg. This, this game as well, there's probably never been a team who've lost the first leg of, of a game at this stage of the competition and probably been so happy with the result because I think this is the second best possible outcome Atletico Madrid could have got in this game because as Natalie said they didn't make any attempt to score a goal so outside of drawing 0-0 a 1-0 defeat without away goals in this tie means that this this is still relatively in the balance going back to the London and they only need they only need a narrow victory to to go through and the odds were really what are against Atletico in this tie but in Spain they always talk about you know like teams suffering and it's like it's like a virtue to be able to suffer during matches and Atletico Madrid just embody that and that first leg at the Etihad was just that. They just sat back. They soaked up all that pressure. They put their bodies on the line. And, and that's, that's Diego Simeone's Atletico Madrid. And it, it might be a similar story in the second leg, but obviously they will they will need to have some sort of attacking plan for that. But I think, as Natalie said, with the energy of the crowd and with how Simeone sort of puts himself almost as the showman for, for those sorts of games, it could be really interesting to see how, how City uh, cope with that. Because if, if the tide tends to turn against them in games, that's maybe their, their one weakness, I think, that, that might be in their, in their team. As we were talking before the, the match with producer Charlie, uh, whether you like it or not, it's good that Atletico de Madrid exists. Because I think it makes you value some things. Would you value the Liverpools and the Cities as much as if Atletico de Madrid didn't exist? I don't know. It's good that you have different narratives that make you that make you think and make managers see see football in different ways, have different approaches, look at different aspects. So whether you like it or not, it's good that they exist. There you they're go. The, they're the Burnley of the Champions League. That's who Simeone is. <laughs> the Argentinian Sean Dyche. And, and European football is all the richer for it. Now, uh, Man City, of course, before they make that trip to the Wanda, have the clash with Liverpool. Oh, my word, how big is this? Just one point between them, as you know, listener, ahead of the, the final, what, quarter of this season. Absolutely huge match, given that these two teams don't tend to drop many points. Could well be the decisive fixture in this year's title race. Liverpool... Themselves coming off a victory on Tuesday night, 3-1 at Benfica. Any thoughts on that, on how well Luis Diaz has slotted in at Liverpool on the prospects for this weekend's game in Manchester? Uh, I, I watched this game, actually, and Liverpool, obviously, huge, huge favourites um, to progress and, and quite comfortably against Benfica, who are, who are miles off the pace uh, domestically in Portugal. The, 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 game sh- the, the game and the tie should have been over at half-time because Liverpool were 2-0 up. And they missed two or three glorious chances. And unusually, it was Salah who was who was a little bit wasteful. And 
and it, it's obviously sort of led to speculation that you know after coming back from the, the disappointment of, of the World Cup qualifiers with Egypt that he could be a little bit drained and obviously with all the sort of contractual stuff that's going on in the background and whether that's going to get finalised or not so for the first time in what feels like years and years, it seems like he's going through a little bit of a, of a I wouldn't say a rough patch, but he certainly he certainly has lost his, his real golden touch in the final third. But Benfica rallied in this game. Uh, they came back, Dorman Nunez, who's, who there's a lot of talk about at the minute, about his summer move. He, he got Benfica back in with a goal. And for about 15 or 20 minutes, Liverpool were really on the ropes in this game. Benfica had them rattled. And Benfica obviously reached the stage by beating Ajax without really sort of deep, low-lying defensive block. They, they took a a lot more risks in this game it was a different approach and it made for a really for the neutral a really exciting match but yeah Louis Diaz who came back and got a lot of uh, a lot of abuse obviously from his um, time at Porto and I think I think there was a Benfica fan through what looked to be some sort of uh, crutch or walking stick at him uh, during the celebrations I'm not sure if anybody's seen this but there was it went it went flying over his head um, from pretty close range but um, obviously obviously a bit of a uh, close escape there, but uh, no, he. he I mean, that is really... that is real commitment to showing your anger, isn't it? You're so angry, you're you're not going to be able to walk home <laughs> walk after the match. Yeah, absolutely, and Louis Louis Diaz, who who is a who obviously is coming in January, he just made that made that place in the Liverpool attack on the left side his own, and it's sort of forced a bit of a rejig with Mane going central, and it's going to be interesting how they set up against City. With is he going to start dealing with Jota? Obviously, Firmino is somebody who tends to come in for these games too, so it's going to be interesting mm. to see if he sticks with uh, if Jurgen Klopp sticks with the same front three for that game. But yeah, they were they were very impressive in terms of creating chances, but. There was a couple of maybe question marks just about about how they maybe lost their cool a little bit and also Salah's form, but I, I think that'll probably return reasonably quickly. Who who thinks Liverpool's going to win on Sunday, and, and who thinks City, and and why? God, I think it's going to be a draw. And is that no, enough for City? Tom. Is that enough? Is a draw enough for City? Well, I mean, it, yeah. you know, it, it keeps it keeps them top. So, right. I, I suspect I suspect they'd take it. I mean, I it was we were... a draw. It was a draw. Sorry, Colin. It was a draw last time, wasn't it? Mm. Uh, uh, the Anfield game, and that was an absolutely spectacular. Even the game, man of the so. match was a draw last time. Even the man of the match was a draw. That's how that's how closely matched these teams are. Mm. I I think Liverpool will win. Um, I mean, listen, I I don't know. These are obviously two incredible teams, and it's the, the contrast in styles, but. I think with with the fact that Liverpool need to win this game, almost need to win this game, they'll feel like they need to win it. That that gives them, I think, a slight psychological edge. I I, I don't know. I, I just think that whenever these two teams come up against each other, City do tend to struggle just with the pace of attacks. And as you said, you see City's one weakness is whenever they don't score first in a game or a right. game tends to, to turn against them. And if Liverpool can get a, a, an early goal or an early advantage in this match, I would make them favourites to win. Um, but I think I think it all depends on that first goal because I don't think City have... I don't. I don't. They haven't lost all season. Taking the lead. I'm not even sure if they've they've dropped any points when they scored first. I'm, I might be no. wrong on that. But but when, when they scored yeah. first, they won every single game. Yeah. Yeah. So that that mm. that just shows exactly how how vital that that sort of opening twenty minutes, thirty minutes is going to be in this game, and, and just to see what way what way the tide turns because Liverpool could could be very very effective on the counter attack, but they're going to need to take more of an initiative, I think, in this one. Right, Natalie, you're going along to this game. What do you think? Yes, I'm going for a City win uh, because I think City really steps up in this type of matches, especially against Liverpool. And I think they they usually they seem more composed, even though 
Liverpool have never seemed more composed in big matches, in, in big moments than compared to this season. It's impressive how the the uh, organized chaos, it's not so chaotic anymore, you know. Uh, but with, with Manchester City, I have the impression that they, they really seem to master the, the pace and the, the intensity that Liverpool tries to bring into this, uh, to this fixture, especially at the Etihad. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, we talk about uh, collectiveness, especially with uh, Manchester City and Liverpool. And what impresses me about Liverpool is how they have the highest level of skills in so many different positions, starting with midfield. If you think Fabinho, Fabinho is the best defensive midfielder in terms of proper defending. It's hard to compare him to, to other Defensive midfielders, Thiago, few players can break the lines and find passes like he can. Henderson, the highest level of leadership, always communicating. It's It makes a, such a huge difference in the way uh, Liverpool never settles on the match. And then you have Alisson, one of the best goalkeepers in the world, Trent, best uh, fullback. So we talk about the collectiveness, but the level of individualities that Liverpool presents at this season is is outstanding. I think it's hard to compare. Could could you not make a similar list for Man City? I would still go for Liverpool in mm-hmm. this sense. Yes, because I think I think the collectiveness in Man City is even stronger than Liverpool. It's 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 tight, but I think when you compare, like you can say Cancelo, you can quote uh, the De Bruyne, Kevin De Bruyne, Phil Foden, but I would still go for Liverpool in this sense. And that was the story of the game when they met in October, um, and as is is often the way with City in these big head-to-head. City started the game really strongly. And I find that very often when they find themselves in, in this sort of fixture, City tend to start games really quickly, fizzing the ball around, depriving their opponents of possession. And you're kind of reminded each time what a remarkable team City are. And there's always a moment when you think if, if they carry this up throughout the whole game the opponent isn't going to get anywhere near them. But one issue they do have, as, as Colin mentioned, is is that they don't always transform that that possession, that, that, that territory into goals. And, and that is one of their weaknesses. And and we saw that in that game at Anfield. It was, you know, slightly reductive, but it was it was kind of City's collective against the brilliance of, of some of Liverpool's individuals. And, and it was the game in which Salah creates a goal for Sadio Mane out of nothing with a fantastic, fantastic dribble and then scores arguably the goal of the season with that fantastic weaving run from the right-hand edge of the penalty area, then that right-foot shot uh, across Edison into the far corner. He's done it again, Mo Salah. Still Salah! Take your hat off to Mo Salah! That's majestic! I suspect there's going to be sort of a similar pattern to this game. You know, we know that City likes to dominate and, and we know that, that Liverpool are, are very dangerous on the, on the counter-attack. And I, that, that's my expectation for how the, the shape of, of the game is, uh, is going to look this time around. We, we just said that we were surprised by Phil Foden not starting against Atletico Madrid. And Manchester City really have probably six or seven attacking players of which any two or three or four or five could start depending on, on how Pep feels on the day and that's something that maybe that element of surprise for Liverpool um, is just something that maybe Liverpool don't quite have in terms of I know I know they've got more and more depth in their squad but I think I think we can sort of predict more of their starting 11 and certainly in certain terms of their shape and how they'll set up whereas City and Pep are always more likely to, to pull a bit of a, a bit of a tactical surprise or, or maybe even in terms of personnel too so it'll be interesting mm. to see just how they line up for this one 
course, Pep's tactical surprises don't always work in City's favour, but there they are. They are at home. They have got the lead in the league. Liverpool, though, with the momentum, arguably, 10 Premier League wins in a row coming into this one. Uh, they've lost, in fact, fewer league games this season than any side anywhere in the big European leagues. Extraordinary. Just West Ham and Leicester have beaten them. Anyway, well, there you go. That's the game in prospect. 4.30 at the Etihad on Sunday afternoon. One point between the top two. One point down the margin at the other end in the Premier League as well. Between Everton and their first relegation since 1951. We'll get on to Burnley-Everton next. It's the Paddy Power Football Supporter Support Line and we're talking to Man United fan Jeremy about Liverpool's potential quadruple. Jeremy? Yeah, I've always said Man City are a great bunch of lads and if they can stop Liverpool winning any trophies, I'll love them even more. It's not always rewarding being a Man United fan, but if you want rewards, then try a completely free £5 bet builder on Liverpool v Man City this weekend. Paddy Power! Pre-match online bet builder bets only. Min two legs plus. Max one free £5 bet per customer. Must have previously deposited to avail. Seven-day free bet expiry. Eligibility restrictions and T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeGambleAware.org. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which is excellent news for Everton fans when they make their Lampardian transition from serious to funny to serious once again. Pre-match bet builders only get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Maximum free bet is £10. Excludes enhanced match odds. Online exclusives and T's and C's apply. Totally Football Show live. It's coming to Birmingham and the Glee Club on the 10th of May. Tough place to go, according to Dan Bardell. If you'd like to witness our attempts to quieten that, we're pretty good at quieting a crowd uh, you know, on, on past uh, on past form. But anyway, 10th of May, go to uh, glee.co.uk for tickets. It's going to be me, Julian Laurence, Michael Cox and Duncan Alexander. So, hmm. A Totally Football League shows out today with Matt Davis-Adams. Uh, lots of news on Derby, their potential new owner. Also, Fulham. They won midweek at Borough. They could be promoted back to the Premier League as early as this weekend. Alexander Mitrovic, of course, with his 38th goal of the season at uh, the Riverside on Wednesday. All right, that's uh, Fulham. Heading the other way department, though, features Burnley and Everton, who faced each other in Wednesday's big relegation scrap at Turf Moor. In what looked like being a decisive game for Burnley's slim survival hopes, they dug deep, found three goals and one at home for only the third time this season. Andy Jones of The Athletic was there. Andy, what a night. Yes, what a night indeed. Um, still sort of just uh, coming down off what was uh, quite an emotional, quite a just a frenetic night. Absolutely. Well, the, the lead swung backwards and forwards. Half-time, Burnley looked set to go seven points behind and that surely would have been it for their relegation hopes but but then Everton Everton well yeah exactly um yeah it, it did look pretty bleak at half time from, from Burnley's perspective given sort of how they'd started the game they'd, they'd gone in front obviously and and played quite well and then that, that first penalty changed the complexion of it completely and and Burnley struggled after that the to sort of, you know, find the rhythm um, and, and they said, I think the nerves got him a little bit and and then that, that second penalty just before half-time was a, a bit of a killer really and 
But yeah, as you say, um, they, they kept believing, they kept calm, they didn't panic. And I thought Dyche's comments after the game were really interesting. That he sort of said to his players, "Listen, Everton don't really know how to win games away from home, so get on the front foot." And and you know, hopefully, and, and as Everton have shown in, in recent games, mistakes will come. And and it was about capitalising on them. And and Burnley did just start and you know scored three goals after not scoring in the last four. So. You know, even that was a bit, <laughs> bit of a surprise. It was the perfect way for Burnley to, in a way, to win that game because it does just bring that momentum. Um, it gets the crowd were, were out, absolutely outstanding. They were, it was a ferocious atmosphere by the end, um, and, and it all bodes well for for that momentum building into the next the next nine games. Yeah, it seemed electric uh, watching it on TV, Andy. What was it like at Turf Moor? Yeah, it was it was great. It started really well. The, the atmosphere was great before kickoff. Um, you know, you could tell the fans were up for it because they all knew the importance and they all knew that they could play their part. And you know, it did get a little bit flat towards towards half time. There was a lot of a lot of uh, stick given to Mike Dean. Um, but even at half time, you know, two one down when the players were going off down the tunnel, there was there was a big roar from the crowd, and, and that's become a bit of a, a staple of of turf more recently in terms of trying to pick the side up instead of like some of the teams, supporters would, getting on the backs. Um, and then, yeah, second half, you could just feel that, that, that things were happening for them. They, they get the equaliser. And and then as the game went on, Dice made some good substitutions and, and they were in the ascendancy. And, and then when, when that goal goes in, you know, it's just bedlam, basically. And it was, you know, it was special to be there. It was a great feeling to, to sort of, to see Turf more like that because it's not been like that enough, as you say, not, not many wins at home. Um, but yeah, no, that, that atmosphere was, was what it should be every week. Yeah, 29 shots in total, five goals. Uh, you were commenting uh, Wednesday night, Burnley do not win games like this. In truth, Burnley do not feature in games like this. But they have the momentum now. And next up, uh, an equally vital trip to Norwich. Can they do it again? I mean, hopefully. Um, hopefully a bit more routine. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, that's the pressure now. And it's, it's sort of the pressure of being down there. I mean, this Everton results, it's huge, but it will mean much less if they don't go and back it up against Norwich and you know, if they slip up there or you know, even a point at this point, you feel like it's, a, it's another must win for them. Um, it sort of, you know, kind of depends on what Everton's result is. If if they somehow, you know, manage to beat Manchester United, you know, the, the pressure's all back on Burnley again. And but yeah, it was it's it's one of them. Burnley have, uh, over the years have been really good at these types of games against the relegation rivals and beating them. But this season they haven't. But usually these games are tight. They're, they're not a great watch. They're a bit, you know, it's just a fight and a scrap. And and this was completely different in in sort of the way the, the game ebbed and flowed and it was end to end and just a bit wild. But yeah, it, and it's not the type of game you usually associate with Burnley. You know, it's it's a more methodical and, and tight and stuff like that. But. They've just got to build on it and go to Norwich and, and try and get another win because those back-to-back wins, like we saw with Leeds when they when they did it recently with mm. with Norwich and, and and Wolves, you know, it, it can just give you that boost and, and suddenly things will look completely different and and just heap the pressure on Everton. Given Burnley's fixture list is probably more well, it, it is more favourable than Everton's for this running. Yeah, Burnley still a point behind the Toffees, but six of Burnley's last nine are against bottom half teams, whereas seven of Everton's last nine are against top half teams what does it mean I don't know certainly there'll be twists and there'll be turns and, and, and maybe even this coming weekend Andy that, that's brilliant I do hope the rest of the well I was going to say I hope the rest of the season is as exciting but perhaps you'd prefer it to be a little less exciting but in any case uh, delighted that you enjoyed Wednesday night and look forward to speaking to you again soon no problem thanks for having me on the mood from an ebullient 
Burnley there. Everton, meanwhile, oh dear me, that that third Burnley goal scored by Maxwell Corney with just four minutes left on the clock. But what, Kenny loses the ball high up, then Pickford, what goes on there, I don't know. And then Godfrey, I mean, equally, it was it was a team, it, what, in just kind of complete funk? I mean, this is the recurring problem for Everton. Uh, and after the game, Frank Lampard... Uh, spoke about the need to fight, about how he was going to fight and how the players were going to have to fight. And that all sounds great, but you watch it and you're thinking, you know, your team don't know how to defend. Fighting is not going to improve that. It's not going to change that. And it, and it happens week after week. And it, it doesn't help that, that Everton were missing you know, their two senior centre-backs last night in, in Michael Keane and, and Yerry Mina. But then even when, when Keane notably has been in the team, they haven't been spared uh, these sorts of mistakes so it is it, it is worrying that that despite the the paramount importance of these fixtures Everton just can't seem to avoid making these uh, these very costly individual errors um, and and just sort of you know taking in a, a, a wider perspective I, th- I think most Everton fans would agree that this is not a mess of, of Frank Lampard's making I mean this is you know this is the fault of the mismanagement that Vard Mashiri has presided over, you know, appointing sporting directors and then giving them, you know, no kind of autonomy in terms of decision making and lurching around from coach to coach with totally different profiles, no kind of continuity in the kind of football that Everton is supposed to be trying to play. And you look at the team they put out last night at Turf Moor and, and yes, there were a few absentees, but, you know, the, the, the lack of quality in key areas, particularly in defence, is is really, really striking. Um, you know, the back four last night was John Joe Kenny, Jared Branthwaite, who was, who was filling in um, in Keane's absence. Uh, and then was it Godfrey or Mason? I think it was, yeah, Ben Godfrey. And then... Uh, Mikalenko at left back. I mean, that is a really, really inexperienced, very flaky defence. And, and when you add all those things together, it, it's no surprise that Everton are where they are. And when you look at that fixture list, it's hard to see them picking up many points in the next few weeks. Man United mm. at home, Leicester at home, Liverpool away, Chelsea at home, Leicester away before things get a little bit better. So it is, it's real dire straits for Everton at the moment. Crazy to think that a year ago, Carlo Ancelotti was in, in charge of them and they weren't far off the Champions League. Positions. All right, so this weekend, they do host Man United, who have only won one game in the last six. And Everton have quite a good record at home. Four wins out of six under Frank Lampard, two of which were in the FA Cup, two in the Premier League, while Burnley head to Norwich. Natalie, what do you think? Are we going to be seeing something absolutely historic in terms of relegation this year? You know, it, you mentioned Antelotti, and I remember at the start of the season, we were talking about Everton, and during the season, how Everton started to struggle, but then you really, you never really consider it seriously. No, Everton, Everton will be fine, Everton will be, will be okay, and now we're actually looking at the fixture list and looking at key results as uh, the Burnley match and thinking, are they? Are they really? Because... It, it's looking like they can't find solutions. It's not only the fixture list. It's not only the results. It's when you see Everton play and everything falls apart so easily. It's like a metaphor of the lack of structure there is around the Everton project when they had uh, the, the the new stadium and Carlo Ancelotti. And when that didn't work properly, especially with Ancelotti, I don't even mean the, the new stadium. It's like they didn't have a plan B, a, clan, a clear plan B. And, and this is how Everton's going by uh, until the end of the season. So anything can happen. Before, I would say, no, Everton will be fine. But now, 
who knows? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, Natalie. I, th- I think um, even in the darkest days of the, the Benitez tenure, I don't think anyone at Everton really expected that they were going to get properly dragged into this relegation battle because when it, whenever you looked at the, the struggles of Norwich and Watford, even of Burnley, and, and that Newcastle had been down there for so long and there was just sort of an expectation that the, the, point, the points tally required for safety would be so low and that a new manager could sort of come in and kind of, kind of help this reset and help this new momentum. But that hasn't really happened at all. And, and, and as Tom said, of course, this isn't Frank Lampard's fault, but he now finds himself in a situation whereby he's he's pretty much an entirely inexperienced in this kind of a role with these kind of expectations that Everton have. And, and there's this sort of theme at Everton whereby there's always an expectation almost that things will go wrong and things things will fall apart. And I think that may be played played out last night, whereby I think everybody kind of thinks this this squad are not built for, for a relegation scrap. And you know, you're 2-1 up away to Burnley. You, both of your goals have come through penalties. You kind of think, right, you've now got this opportunity to put this seven-point gap in place, and they just fall apart again in the second half. And you, you can't do that. And you looked at uh, Carlo Ancelotti, obviously, who's masterminded Real Madrid's win on the same night, ironically. But last season, they Everton got 37 points uh, away from home in the league, which is more than Chelsea, more than Liverpool, more than Arsenal. And it's, it's doubtful if they'll even get 37 points in the entirety of this league campaign this time around. It, it just shows you the the huge fall-off and the huge drop there has been in results. And I just wonder, obviously Everton fans won't want this, but would it, would, it, would relegation be some sort of opportunity to, to reset things that are clearly broken behind the scenes? I, I don't know, but but something, something needs to happen at that club. All right, well, Man United visiting Goodison this Saturday in the lunchtime kick-off. Quick word on them, though, because, as I mentioned, one win in the last six in all competitions and changes going on behind, well, not even behind the scenes, quite quite out in the open, interviewing new managers. Looks like Eric Ten Hag is going to be coming in. What do you think that does to the, their focus for this game? And is it the right appointment if that's the one they plump for? Tom, you're bald. You can speak about Eric Ten Hag. Thanks, thanks, James. Uh, I, th- I think it. I think it. It will give the club and the fan base a lift um, at a time when there hasn't been much else to be excited about. Um, you look at recent results. You know that nil-nil draw at home to Watford, the loss in the derby, drawing at home to Leicester last time out, going out of the Champions League, the decision to bring in Rolf Rangnick, which I think a lot of us, myself included, thought was quite a sensible one, has clearly not worked. Has clearly Ralph backfired. Rangnick, I call him. Well, indeed, indeed. Um, and there is this, there's a sense of drift already. I think a lot of United fans, albeit they're only, what, three points off uh, the top four, I think there is a feeling that, you know, they are very much playing catch-up now uh, in the race for the Champions League. And I think there's a fatalism among a lot of United fans that they just need to get to the end of the season now. Obviously, if they can get top four, that would be that would be fantastic. But even if they don't, they need to get to the end of the season and then bring in the new head coach. And, and at least if it is to be Ten Hag, as looks increasingly likely, then that is certainty um, in terms of the future direction uh, that, that the club's going to go into, where previously there's been only uncertainty and speculation. I think Ten Hag would be the, the boldest managerial appointment uh, that United have made in the post-Ferguson era. I think it'd be the most exciting managerial appointment. Um, I think what they're getting is, is a, a proper football coach, uh, a man with ideas, um, and unlike Ralph Rangnick, a man who 
you know, has has shown in the recent past that he's capable of, of getting those ideas across, which is you know probably been Ralph Rangnick's biggest failing overall. I, I think the question mark with Ten Hag is, you know, how is he going to handle this this step up from the biggest club in the Netherlands to Manchester United and all the pressures that come with it and this very imbalanced changing room um, and this very kind of shapeless sporting project. So I, th- I think it's exciting and I think it'll give the place a lift. But yeah, inevitably, you know, when you get a, a coach coming in from another league and, and mm. for all that he's done with Ajax uh, in, in the Champions League, notably, he's not going to have quite the same sort of freedom at Old Trafford. So, you know, there is inevitably a big question mark on that. From the best side in the Netherlands to the seventh best side in the Premier League alright does anybody else want to add any thoughts about Ten Hag and then we'll get into what happened to Arsenal on Monday at Selhurst Park and the other top four prospects first I really do believe that the appointment although it's not official yet uh, can have an effect on the players because I really do believe that the players not knowing who the manager is going to be uh, next season is always in the back in the back of their heads so now that they have an idea they have a name they have a, a, a storyline there. I think that can have an effect. And I'm very curious to see how Ten Hag will work with Man United's structure because the structure around Ajax is completely different and it's very it's very well defined. We know how Ajax how Ajax works, what's important for them. And with Man United, we've been talking about the, the amount of problems they've had uh, in terms of structure, in terms of leaderships, and 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 so I'm I'm curious to see how Ten Hag will deal with this side as well. What I would say about Ten Hag is that a lot of people have said, "Oh, this is going to take three or four transfer windows or three or four seasons to get back on track." And Jeepers. I mean, I don't agree with that at all. I, I always find that a bit of a lazy excuse. I mean, the club will either get back on track reasonably quickly within within the next season with a couple of smart signings, or they won't get back on track at all. I mean, they, they either will sort out their recruitment system or they won't. It's not it's not going to happen in two or three years. You know, they you can do this in one window. Why can you not sign four or five players who will immediately upgrade the, the, the squad, bring in a couple of the very promising youth players that they have and give them more game time? I always see these excuses being labelled, though it's, it's going to be this long-term wait. And we, we all know City and Liverpool are at this incredible level at the minute, but is that going to last forever? And United have almost infinite resources in terms of transfer money to, to spend at players. They've got a very good core of players there that they can build on. And with so many players leaving this summer, that will create the, the wriggle room in the squad financially to bring the players that Ten Hag will, will want and his own coaching team coming in board too. I I just I just don't think there's there's any reason to be as downbeat as some people would say. It it, it will either be fixed reasonably quickly or or it won't be, and that will be on the structure of the club. Should be entertaining to watch either way. Steve McLaren also tipped to be coming in as Ten Hag's number two. There'll be loads more opportunity to discuss uh, the Dutchman's arrival and impact at Old Trafford once, especially that gets confirmed, and indeed the Ralph Ragnick uh, legacy. But now let's move on. And quickly touch on the rest of the weekend's matchups and also the other teams in that top four race. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. 
We're all driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Top four race, everybody, while United visit Everton. Arsenal host Brighton. Spurs go to Villa. The table sees Spurs and Arsenal now level, with Spurs ahead on goal difference. They're both three points ahead of West Ham and Man United. Arsenal have games in hand. Well, they have one on United and Spurs and two on West Ham. However, they're coming off that 3-0 defeat Monday away at Crystal Palace. Oh, Arsenal, just when you had us believing. What, what happened? What happened? It felt like the sort of thing that used to happen to Arsenal in the latter years of the Arsene Wenger era in that they had this positive dynamic. They went into that game uh, having won six of their previous seven league games um, and having only dropped points in in the home defeat against Liverpool um, and looking like the favourites uh, for for fourth place, you know, with that with that game in hand, uh, and then you took one element out of the starting eleven in Kieran Tierney, and you put in a slightly undercooked uh, replacement in, in Nuno Tavares, and the whole thing just just fell apart. And, and Palace targeted that side of, of the Arsenal defence quite deliberately and quite understandably. Both of the first two goals came from that area. You know, the first a free kick towards uh, the back post where Tavares was, and then that pass in between. Gabriel uh, and Nuno Tavares from, from Joachim Anderson that, that Jordan Ayew seized on to score. Um, and all of a sudden, Arsenal just, just looked uh, shell-shocked um, and looked like they didn't really have any sort of answer and, and, and Palace ended, ended up running in a, a third goal. And, and I think both the, the nature of the defeat, you know, to have been so comprehensively outplayed uh, by a team who, who they would probably have been expected to beat and to have lost those key players to injury. I mean, Kieran mm. Tierney, we're now hearing, is going to be out for the season with his knee problem. There's no obvious replacement for him at left-back. You know, Nuno Tavares, for all his, his talent, does look uh, a little bit a little bit callow and, and has looked shaky when he's played this season. Thomas you Partey, the put, other player going off. Thomas Partey as well, now being out. So, so two absolutely key players, and, and, it, and it makes you realise what a kind of... It makes this this momentum, this dynamic that Arsenal have been on of late suddenly look like a very fragile thing. And I think it will give the teams who are chasing them in that in that top four battle, or rather the mm. teams who are competing with them, because of course Spurs are currently above them uh, in the table ahead of this weekend, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of belief. Right, Palace though, big pat, big pat on the back. Uh, they've won four of their last five in all competitions, the exception being a nil-nil draw with Man City, which is not bad. They're in the FA Cup semi-finals as well. That's Chelsea 
next weekend, actually, at Wembley, the weekend after this uh, r- remarkable stuff, eh? That's, again, something that they obviously came out of the back of last season with Roy Hodgson leaving and so many players out of contract. And we just spoke about United and how many transfer windows they'll take to fix things. And Crystal Palace took one transfer window and they reinvigorated their squad with five or six really smart signings, young players, hungry players. And they now seem to be a team who are really energetic and who obviously they beat Tottenham 3-0 uh, at Selwyn Park early in the season beat Arsenal 3-0 they drew 2-2 at Arsenal early in the season and again they, they were very unlucky not to win that game with the last minute equaliser they've, they, they've had these performances in them and they, they've had a couple of injury setbacks this season but they're a really exciting team to watch when they're on it and last year under Hodgson as well organised as they were defensively, they were almost the, the complete opposite. So they've managed to transform things really quickly. Obviously, they've got the, the FA Cup still still to look forward to and to play for, which they're, they're probably the only one of those mid-table teams who really have anything meaningful to play for. But I think that, that gives you that extra psychological aspect for the players to really keep focused and, and to keep going until the end of the season. We probably mm. saw that a little bit on Monday. Palace this weekend will be away at Leicester that Sunday at 2 o'clock. Saturday afternoon, Arsenal will be hosting Brighton, who've picked up just one point and scored only one goal in their last seven Premier League matches. Hmm. While Spurs will be heading to Aston Villa that Saturday tea time. Interesting game. What do you think, Natalie? Yes, I think it will be interesting. A, a, an interesting clash to see which team incorporated better the ideas of their managers. And I know it's an unfair comparison, comparing Antonio Conte to Steven Gerrard in terms of experience of, of uh, football. But Conte was appointed on the 2nd of November and Gerrard was appointed at the 13th of November. So it's they've been there kind of the, the same. And uh, we can see clearly a Conte team more, more often, uh, with a fighting spirit, the mental strength, organized, good signings. When, as with Villa, it's it's been a bit weird because they, they come from three defeats in a row. It's not good enough for a team who has a lot of quality players. They have improved under Gerhard, no question about it. But maybe not as much as we initially thought, because at least I I was very excited when he, he arrived. Uh, the initial impact was significant. And, and Gerhard didn't get many results against the big six. He lost to City, he lost to Liverpool, he lost to Chelsea, he lost to Arsenal and he got a point against United so uh, I'm sure he's 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 aware of that and he he's very much looking forward to to meeting the Spurs that that comes in this great momentum mm. all right the other team meanwhile in the in the top four race they're still there although they have played more games than everybody else are West Ham they're at Brentford Brentford who are 4-1 winners at the bridge last weekend and also beat West Ham at the London Stadium back in October West Ham as well have Europa League action Thursday evening. They're taking on Lyon. Tough tie, that one. Also coming up this weekend, and very much in the relegation picture, you've got Watford, who, after Everton's defeat midweek, remain only three points behind them. They've played an extra game. They're hosting Leeds in what could be a very significant uh, fixture. Certainly the, the reverse game between these two had a certain amount of impact. The Leeds securing their first win of the season and Watford sacking their manager the next day. That was Cisco Munoz, remember? Back, I'd back actually then. forgotten about Cisco Munoz. Mm. I'd forgotten that he was ever Watford. That's such a Watford thing, isn't it? They have so many managers <laughs> who you just can't even remember. Yep, Roy Hodgson there now, though, and set to continue displaying his training ground prowess during the week. Yeah, lovely. Lovely little knock for João Pedro. <laughs> yeah, very nice. 
but unavailable for selection, we think, for the Leeds game Saturday, 3 o'clock. What else is coming up this weekend? You've got Saints against Chelsea, the match that Thomas Tuchel was so very concerned about on Wednesday night after the Real Madrid defeat. As uh, he should be. Well, Chelsea have conceded seven goals in their last two games, but Saints are winless in five matches. Why, why should he be worried, though, Natalie? Because Southampton, they, they seem to, to thrive when they play these big teams. They got mm. a point against Man United. They got a point against Manchester City uh, at, their, at their ground, and it was an amazing match. Pep Guardiola was fuming after the match. It was, it was very high level. They, they beat Spurs. So, so they seem to, to really incorporate a, a different spirit. Uh, they just lost to Watford. So it's kind of weird. They just lost to Watford. They got a draw against Leeds. But in these big matches, they really step up. So Southampton have only lost one of their last five matches against Chelsea. That was the league game earlier in the season. But that was 1-1 until the final five minutes. And Southampton had James Ward-Price sent off in that match so there was a bit of a, a bit of a caveat to that but uh, as Natalie said Ralph Hasenhutl I think his style of play is particularly effective against these big teams they, they struggle to, to, to really find solutions to it Interesting alright that's Saturday at 3 o'clock and kicking the weekend uh, quotes off is Friday night's clash between Newcastle and Wolves uh, no Ralph Jimenez for Wolves, he's still suspended. It's the final game of his two-game ban after that red card against Leeds. Crikey. Leicester, who are hosting Crystal Palace, are also, like West Ham, in European action this Thursday evening. They're in the Conference League quarterfinals against PSV. Hmm. Tom? Slightly curious stat, and I'm not sure that I can back this up with, with any hard science, but there are very few draws currently in the Premier mm. League. Um, just had a look at the most recent uh, few uh, rounds of matches. There have only been six draws across the last six uh, entire Premier League match days, which strikes me as so quite 60 unusual. So 60 games, you've only had six draws. That's what, 10%? That yeah, does seem that, remarkable, doesn't it? That, to me, feels quite low. Um, hmm. And I guess you've got teams on... I mean, you've got some teams on remarkable streaks. Liverpool, 10 wins in a row. City, dropping very few points. Then you've got your Brightons and your Norwiches, who were each yeah. on six-match losing streaks prior to hmm. the 0-0 draw that they shared last weekend. Um, yeah, I don't know what to make of it. don't know how to explain it, but I, I thought I'd mention it. Some teams very, very good, and some teams very, very not good. Seems to be the yeah. message there. Colin. There are a lot of teams who seem to be in free fall at the minute, and not not just in the relegation battle, but talked about Brighton and their their dreadful run. But even even Southampton and, and Villa, a lot of these mid table teams who we know they've nothing re- as I said nothing meaningful to play for, and you get into these little ruts whereby it, it just seems it just seems to ex- uh, you know accelerate this bad run whereby they forget how to win and and the pressure sort of builds from that. But you know you mentioned the draws. Man United must be responsible for for quite a number of those draws. It seems that they've drawn quite a lot mm. under Ralph Ranić. I mean, that seems to be every every other week they're they're drawing a team I don't know obviously with Leicester recently as well. Um but yeah, they they seem to be responsible for quite a lot of those results. Yeah, very possibly. Very possibly. Will Everton manage a point against them this weekend? And would that be a good result for them? All big questions ish. Uh, and uh, we'll so it be... feels like the polar opposite, doesn't it? The mm-hmm. fact that on the weekend when one Manchester club uh, takes on one Liverpool club in what is basically a title decider, the right. other Manchester club and the other Liverpool club meet in this sort of 
it's, you know, festival of the <laughs> of the damned uh, at Goodison Park. Um, sort of the universe balancing balancing things yeah. out as it so often That's does. That's nicely framed. Very nicely put. Mm. Magnificent. Well, we'll be reviewing that and all the rest of the weekend action when we return on Monday morning. So do join us, listener, for that. Thanks for being along today. And our thanks as well to producer Charlie and Colin and Tom and Natalie. Hope you all have a great weekend. And we'll catch up with you soon on the Totally Football Show. Cheerio. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.